Good morning, friends. Hello, everybody. Um, hey, Lou, how are you? Good morning. How are we doing today? Good, good. Beautiful day. Are we um, wrapping up Chapter 2 today? Is that what we're doing? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Chapter 2 moving. And a lot of people say the actual message of the Gita starts in Chapter 3. Excellent. Because that's where the advice as to how to proceed starts coming our way. Up to now, it's basically been a lot of basics, teaching us what the Atman is, what all of this is. And Chapter 3, uh, when we begin that, is essentially what is what do we need to do to get further along? Um, I like these various chapters that are going to be following. Oh, good. I wanted to also tell everybody that the best way to listen to the Gita, because in the past, nothing was written down. Mm -hmm. Everything was oral. And the, the Gita was sung and passed on from family to family and told to pass on to the next generations. But now we have books. Wait a second. And it was sung? It was sung, yes. Do those songs uh, linger into today? Are there examples of those? Yeah. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, wow. I mean, there's a specific rhythm and a tonality to every verse mm -hmm. in the Gita. And when we study under uh, the gurus, uh, each verse has to be sung first. Oh, wow. Then you discuss it. But we happen to have, I mean, most people don't know Sanskrit. These are all in Sanskrit. Right. And... So we have the English translations ahead of us, and we look at the translation so we understand. What I was going to say is that I would request everybody to have a copy of the Gita. If you speak English, then you should have a copy of it in English mm -hmm. in front of you, so you know what the Gita is saying. Uh, hearing me is one thing, but I can't read you the actual um, verse itself, right. and it may be better. I personally have looked at a lot of translations of the Gita, many, many of them, and I found that Swami Parthasarthi's um, uh, translation of the Gita is, in my opinion, the best. Okay. Um, is it possible to put a link on? Yeah, so um, I was going to say, send me the link, and I'll put it on our Facebook page so people have a okay. reference. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's the Vedanta Society where I have studied uh, under Gautam Jain, and I would suggest that it would be a good idea for all of you to have a translation of the verses as we go forward from here. The second thing I was, I've been sort of remiss in doing is to thank you, Lou. Oh. Thank you very, very much. I mean, you've been a great partner in all of this. We're now approaching, what, our 30th episode? Yes. This is 29 right here, yeah. All of this is uh, greatly appreciated your help. I couldn't have done it without you. So well, thank I, you. And I appreciate the journey. I'm enjoying the journey. This is all fascinating and uh, works into some of the stuff I've been doing in my own life. It's a different approach to it. So I'm, I'm enjoying this, actually. Great. I'm, I'm so glad. Thanks, mm -hmm. Lou. All right. So today we are going to be doing episode 29, right? Yes. And this is from verse 67 to 72 in the second chapter. So the first thing that we have to remember is that the second chapter is all about Sankhya. Sankhya Yoga is the yoga of knowledge. Yoga means getting together, uh, yuj or a yoke, getting together. Who getting together? Us, getting together yeah. with our own self. How do you, Yoga is not physical yoga like you go for uh, <laughs> yoga classes. Yeah. Yoga means getting together. There are multiple ways in which this can be done. And the first one that is in chapter two is the yoga of knowledge. 
says you must gain this knowledge in order to get to the self. So in the chapter three is karma yoga, which means the yoga of do activity. Karma is doing things, the yoga of activity. And the first question Arjuna is going to ask Krishna in the third chapter is, well, which is greater? Mm. Which should I be doing, knowledge or karma? And that's when the answers start and how to do this. So our listeners need to understand, friends, please understand that in order to get to ultimate peace and bliss, to become self-realized, you have to have the knowledge in order to get yourself peace, to get meditation. So in one lifetime, if you're starting now, no matter how young you are, most of us are not going to be become self-realized. So at my age, for instance, what can I achieve in the next so many years that I have in life? Right. I don't hope to become self-realized. But I can tell you from personal experience that as you get further by doing this, you wish you had started this earlier because life becomes so much sweeter. Life, you become so much more peaceful. You become so much happier. And it just moves the scale that much for yourself. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that from personal experience. And I have nothing to gain by pushing this on you. Um, So... Why does it become peaceful? And it becomes peaceful because the various desires, it's all a chain loop. It's all, you know, thought, desires leading to uh, obsessions, attachment, and all of that creates noise inside the head. And karma yoga is a way to get rid of these desires. Why do we need to get rid of the desires? Well, self-mastery is the key, right? Self-mastery is the key to... Key to happiness. Instead of being controlled by outside forces, being controlled by your desires, being controlled uh, by your senses, you have control over yourself. Yes, that is surely true that you have control, but mastery alone is not what we are looking at here. That What you're saying is absolutely true, that we need to have control of the senses. As you will see in Chapter uh, 3, among the first few verses... Um, Krishna tells Arjuna, you have to master your senses Mm -hmm. because otherwise your senses will take off and take your mind with you. Right. But what we are saying here is that in order to gain better and better control, each one of us needs to meditate. Right now, if we sit down to meditate, what happens is our mind is so clogged with desires that every second a new thought will pop in. And you can't meditate because those thoughts, as much as you try to keep yourself calm and think of nothing, every second a new thought will come or the same thought will keep revising itself over and over again. Right. That prevents you from meditating. If you don't meditate, you can't get peace. In order to get peace, you have to have silence from your desires, or at least some semblance of some silence. Um, some lessening of the desires, therefore lessening of the noise is very necessary. In order to do that, you've got to reduce your desires. So this is an important part as we get through session number 29, which is verses 67 to 72, and then for the first few verses of the next chapter. So you should at least not generate new desires. Mm. That's a key. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that we all come to this world with a certain number of inherent desires. 
you have a small little baby in your two twins, for instance, growing up, you see the difference between one twin that is has a vasna, strong desire for one thing, the other dis twin does not. Right. Ha his or her desires for something else. Where do those desires come from? They're inherent. They're genetic. They're born with them. They are from previous lives, vasanas, that basically drive them towards something. What are the kind of desires that are common and forceful? Those are desires for power, mm -hmm. money, fame, uh, sexual pleasure, mm -hmm. other sensual pleasures, wealth, um, family. So these are all at a level of the body. Uh, then comes the mind, which are all emotional attachment, um, love, attachment to family, spouse, children, grandchildren. Um, and then comes the intellect. And the intellect is mostly respect for oneself, from others, power, fame, um, reputation, those kind of things. Right. All are vasanas, all these are desires. Now, the key to remember is that you are going to be, we are all going to be born with certain desires that are inherent in them. Those are strong. They've come from lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of, of ourselves, and they're the foundation for us. That's our personality. Those are going to be very difficult to get rid of. You can only indulge in them. But the way, as in Chapter 3, you will see, is how you indulge in them so that you don't fan the fires and make them worse. Right. Second, in addition to those desires, you don't want to generate new desires. So otherwise, right. you have an existing amount of desires, and then you're generating more and more, and those carry on with you to the next life. So how not to generate new desires is important. And I hope I don't forget, but Lou, as we get to those verses, uh, you can remind me. Mm -hmm. So without, one, without meditation, one will not be able to experience peace and absolute stillness of the self. Peace within gives you absolute peace. There's no agitation. And peace brings happiness automatically. Chapter 6, oh, sorry, verse 67 says, For the mind, comma, which follows the roving senses, comma, carries away his intellect as the wind carries away a boat on water. Yeah. This is a simile, a metaphor, that has been carried over in through the Upanishads. This is a commonly used metaphor where... The ocean represents the world in which we live. The boat represents us. Mm -hmm. The captain represents our intellect. And the strong winds represents the desires right. of the mind, the yeah. turbulence. The compass that the ca captain uses to direct uh, our direction is the scriptures and the knowledge that we gain. So what it says in verse 60 of chapter 2, if you go back and look again, verse 60 says... When the senses are attracted to sense objects, it can be so powerful that the mind can be carried away behind the senses. That's what it says in 60s, in verse 60. In verse 67, this one, it says, the mind and the senses then can carry away your intellect. You completely, you're lost. It's right. like, yes, you lost everything because your intellect gets carried away and says, why not? It justifies the action that the mind wants you to take. 
you go towards an object that is quote-unquote forbidden or you know is going to cause you a lot of problems. And we've seen this with a lot of famous people, politicians, world leaders, religious leaders, who do things because of their senses demanding it, that mind follows, and then the intellect just gives up and goes along with it. And then their whole life, their reputation, their career is, is down the tubes. Yeah, desire is running the show. That's the desires running show. Yes, yeah. a good way of putting it. It's the desires that are propelling the senses and the mind, and the intellect just goes along. So it's the, the 67th verse says, be careful. Don't let the intellect fall prey to the mind and the senses. Otherwise, all will be lost. Um, verse 68 says, therefore, O Mahabaho, his wisdom is established whose senses are completely restrained from sense objects. So you remember we talked about in one of the earlier verses that a wise man is like a turtle that yes. upon seeing danger of sense objects pulls in all six of its limbs and holds tight. Right. And what we said that that referred to is the turtle is the shell. That's the intellect. Right. protecting the turtle itself from the sun, which is the world. And upon sight of any danger, the intellect pulls in all six of its limbs, which are the five senses and the mind. Right. Pulls it in. And in this verse, verse 68, because the Gita often repeats itself in different words so that it sort of hammers in the teachings, and that's what we are doing over here. The weakness for indulgence in sensual pleasures results in our downfall. Hmm. It's the sensual pleasures that, that appeal to us, and we have a weakness towards it, and when we go towards it, it's our downfall. So gaining control of our sense organs, and then gaining control over our organs of action. You remember the organs of action are the arms, the legs, the um, organs of excretion, the genitals for sexual pleasure, and the voice box. Mm -hmm. And we, we can gain control over our arms and legs. I mean, we're not going to go punch somebody in the right. face. Yeah. But what happens, and we gain control over our excretory. We don't urinate or defecate all over the place. Mm -hmm. But the problem is our voice box, because we say a lot of things that we shouldn't be saying. It gets us in trouble. Right. And we lose control of our sexual organs. And those are the two that get us into the biggest problems. So... It would seem the opposite is that an indulgence in one or more sense objects gives us pleasure, but it's the other way around. Remember, folks, that I learned this, that the mind looks for pleasure that is instant. Yeah. It doesn't look for pleasure that you have to work towards and get at the end. It says, eh, that's too much work for me. I want pleasure that is instant, like a drug addict. Right. Anything that gives it instant pleasure, it runs after and wants to pull the intellect after it. So an indulgence in one or more sense object that gives instant pleasure is where we focus. And those are the ones that are the most fraught with consequences, whether it be health-wise, diet, something that gives you instant pleasure, as opposed to um, eating something that's healthy that's going to give you pleasure because your body is healthier. Yeah. At the end, as you're saying this, I keep thinking of children. This is the way children act, and we, in a sense, uh, act as the intellect for children until they develop their own. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, 
that is known as the coming of age, mm -hmm. or that's when you develop your real intellect. Right. Until then, they don't have an intellect. We are their surrogate intellect. So we as parents, right. as grandparents, as family members, uh, clergy, religious people say, this is good, this is not good. That's what the intellect basically tells them. But in some ways, we still act as children <clears throat> when we let our desires and our sense organs take over for us. Right. Yeah. In the past, what used to happen was, in all cultures, they said, okay, now you're grown up, you have your own intellect, we're giving you a special uh, thread that says you're now a Brahmin or you're, you're of age, this is your bar mitzvah. Now you know how to control your senses. We have to control it. Yeah. That has gone, long gone. And now we just tell people, encourage them to indulge in the sense objects. That's the problem. Right. So verse 69 says, that which is night to all beings, the self-controlled one keeps awake. Mm. That which is night for all beings, us, the self-controlled one keeps awake. That in which beings are awake is night to the sage who sees. So basically, this is a little confusing, and it's a very simple way of saying that, in essence, what gives us pleasure doesn't necessarily give the enlightened one pleasure. What is, and things are exactly opposite. The experiences of the ignorant people of this world compared to a self-realized person are as different as night and day. Right. That's basically all it says. Mm -hmm. A self-realized person lives in complete knowledge and constant bliss. We are constantly seeking the pleasures of the body, the mind, and the intellect. The rest of the inhabitants of this world are caught up in perceptions from the body and actions, perception, receipt of a stimulus, right, a reaction to it, and then response. Those are the three R's. Right. The mind, which is feelings and emotions, intellect, which is thoughts and ideas. Therefore, we go up and down, depending on what uh, response we get from the world or what the senses are. Right. So it says it's night and day. Verse 70 says, as the waters enter the ocean, which, filled from all sides, remains undisturbed, likewise he, in whom all objects of enjoyment enter, attains peace, not the desirer of objects. So it's a long verse, yep. but basically saying that the person who just desires sense objects doesn't get this. He's just going to keep going life after life looking for more objects. But he who is looking for eternal peace, starts to go down this road, he has an individuality. It talks of rivers and the ocean. So every river has its own personality. Right. The Ganges starts in the Himalayas, collects water, and has its own traversing course. And has, on a geog geography, it has a course, and therefore it has a certain way of presenting itself. That may change over time. But ultimately, all these rivers come into the ocean. And when they come into the ocean, they pour into the ocean at this delta that occurs between a river and the ocean. And the ocean is totally undisturbed. Right. As the water is pouring in, you don't see that the ocean's going up. Well, we might see it when all of this global warming takes place and all this ice melts. But this comes from the Mundaka Upanishad, this particular metaphor of rivers and oceans. But basically telling us that, look, you are the river, 
you are ultimately going to merge your um, your Atman is going to merge with the Brahman, right. which is the Brahman, and your personality is going to be lost, but the totality is going to be gained. So that's what he's saying in verse 70. As the waters enter the ocean, which, filled from all sides by all rivers, remains undisturbed. The Brahman doesn't get disturbed. As many Atmans want to join Brahman, it's okay. Likewise, he, in whom all objects of enjoyment enter, attains peace. Mm-hmm not the desirer of object who cons- consistently suffers with his desires for uh, more sense objects. Then comes verse 71. Verse 71 says, that man who abandons all desires and moves about without yearning, without the sense of I and mind, attains peace. So there's a few things that he mentions in this verse. Mm-hmm. He who abandons desires, so that's the key, abandoning as many desires as he can. He who moves about, so he's not saying, okay, I want to abandon desires, but I'm going to go up into the mountains and stay there where (laughs) I'm not part of any temptations. He's saying he's moving about, and he's still not succumbing to to his temptations. Right. Without yearning. See, he says, this man who abandons all desires and moves about without yearning. That's an important piece of the sentence that I found very important. Yearning is something that adds to our base of desire, right? I said, from previous lifetimes, we come with a certain number of desires, and those are hard to get rid of because we're born with them. I might be born with a desire for food, hmm. right? Yep. And I, I may be uncontrollably giving into my desires, but other things don't matter to me. I don't care about beauty, my beauty. Right. I don't care about power or reputation or intellectual fame or whatever, but food is my weakness. If I try to attack food as the weakness, it's going to be hard because that's the biggest vasana I have. But... At the same time, if I start to generate, to yearn for something else, that I can control. That I can control because it's a minor vasana. Right. So what he's saying in this verse is that give up all yearning. What he's saying is cut off the smaller desires that occur. If you are passing a house, you know how we look at it and say, God, that's a beautiful house. A man who is closer to self-realization says, beautiful house, turns away, looks somewhere else. Right. Average person looks at the house, oh, look at oh, look at that part of it. Look at the shingles, look at the roofs, look at the window. And then it re- arises where the mind says, I want it. Yeah. Right? I want it. That is yearning. That yearning can occur towards food, can occur towards objects, can occur towards people, can occur towards wealth, money, all kinds of things. And a lot of religions say, don't crave for something that A, doesn't belong to you, be something that you know uh, you shouldn't be craving for, all kinds of things like that. So what he's saying here is, A, abandon desires, B, move about in the world, meaning be in there. If you're up in the Himalayas, you're not going to see these right. beautiful houses. But if you're moving about, you see it, stop the yearning. And then it says, without the sense of I and mindness. That is a very big thing here, because we tend to all say, this. I did this, this is mine. But what we don't realize is 
that none of what we accomplished would have been accomplished if it had not been for thousands of people that brought us to where we are today. How did I learn to write? Who taught me when I was in kindergarten or first grade to hold a pencil, to write A, B, C? Who taught me to read, to spell, to stand, to walk, to you know be a certain way? If I factor in all of that, the accomplishments of me, I, is zero. Right. I haven't done anything. I'm just taking what I learned and then passing it on, as with the Gita. All, everything that we learn is from sages that have passed it on to us. And each one of us has learned from somebody else. And we pass it on to the next person, hoping that it will benefit that person. So there should be no I and no me, because we say this is mine. But interestingly, everything that we say is mine, almost everything, is going to last past us. Mm. So I say this pencil, this pen is mine. After I die, this pen is still going to be around. I'm not, but the pen is. Right. The house is still going to be there, my house. But I'm not going to be there. So this I-ness and mine-ness is something that we have to get rid of. Just my notes here. <laughs> so this, I have done something. This house is mine. This job is mine has to be eliminated. We have to practice it. Um, to boast about the accomplishments of our children is another thing. Again, mindness. You know, have to resist the temptation to do that. S putting photographs of ourselves on um, different social media. Right. Say, look at me. I was at this party. I was at that party. Look how nice I look. That's something that further takes away from um, your peace of mind. Imagine that you are an actor. You know, the actors on stage basically are acting as the lead person in the stage. You know, the person that comes at the end and takes a bow and everybody stands up and gives him a standing ovation. Right. While he's acting, he knows that I'm not really this king that's in this play. I'm just me, the actor. While he's acting as the king, he knows that he is just an ordinary person. We have to go through life in the same way, that we're just actors on this stage, that none of this really matters because it's just an act, just like in a play. Right. So the question arises, well, then who are we? Who are you? And I keep reminding myself that the scriptures say, aham brahmasmi. That means I am Brahman. I am Brahman, meaning um, I am the I'm the Atman. I'm the Brahman. I'm not me. Somebody could say, "Well, who are you?" Yeah. I'm Brahman. So that's the key. When you're acting, even if you're acting extremely well, people say, "Wow, that's great." It's not. It's not me. It's Brahman right. that's doing this. All right. So that's chapter um, two, verse seventy-two. Last two verses left. Or one last, which is, did we do 71? Yeah. 71. Which is, this is the state of Brahman, attaining which none is deluded. 
being established therein in Brahman, even at the end of life, one attains oneness with Brahman. Brahman comes from the Sanskrit prefix, prefix of bra. Bra means big, infinite. Brahman is that which is big and infinite. So, infinite. Um, we, as an Atman, consider just whatever that small piece of Brahman is inside us. So, just to not confuse it, we call it Atman. But it's really the same. It's like ocean water right. that is with us. But really, Brahman is everywhere, and that's where we are headed to go. So, the example that some people have given is that we are like space in a pot. Imagine that there's a pot and there's space. And that space is me. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I'm that space. I only know of myself as the space within the pot. So I identify with the pot itself. I said, I am this pot yep. and I'm space in this pot. As we start to gain more knowledge, we say, whoa, I'm the space, not the pot itself. In fact, I'm the same space in all these other pots. Now, think that I'm gone now from just thinking that I'm a small space inside one pot to saying, no, I'm the same space in all these pots. You say, okay, but if all these pots are destroyed and all of my space comes out, then I become one with this larger space that's everywhere. Wait, is the moon inside me? Wow, all these planets, the sun, everything is inside me as the space? So we go from just a pot inside, space inside one pot to the space in all the pots to the space in which everything is. That's us. That's us as Brahman. Yeah. So, friends, that is chapter, uh, verse 72, and it is the end of chapter 2. And at the end of the chapter in the Gita, a prayer is sung, uh, which I won't do Are here. Are you going to sing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, but next time we'll start with uh, Chapter 3, Karma Yoga, and I hope you will ask questions. If you're listening to this on the uh, podcast, then you can't ask questions. But if you get onto Facebook, maybe, Lou, you can advise them what to do mm -hmm. as uh, far as that. Search on Facebook, The Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. And uh, the Gita Memoirs, and you come to the Facebook page, you can leave all kinds of comments there, see video versions of these podcasts that you're listening to, ask questions, and get into the discussion. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.